Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's a lot to discuss today. I, I uh, this actually, I've been off the last couple of weeks. So, so I, whenever that happens, uh, it doesn't happen too often, but it, it makes me realize just um, how much giving uh, these these talks uh, means to me and how important they are to my own. Uh, life uh, and, 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 and spirituality and connection and everything like that. So I can't give these talks uh, unless you come so, or unless you're listening. So I just want to begin by just thanking you for making all of this uh, possible because it, it means so much to me and, and I benefit so much from it. So, so thank you and, and I'm, I'm happy to be back and, and doing it again. And um, I want to talk about... Uh, a number of things. This is the. We, I want to talk about the golden calf and a lot of different implications about it from different different points of view because it really is. I mean, we have to we have to fully appreciate that it is considered like the the hallmark bad that we did, you know. And if you just approach it from that perspective, that it is sort of like the the greatest bad thing that we ever did then there's certainly a, a, a lot to learn from it. Of course, we've, um, you know, probably competing for first place is eating from the tree of knowledge. <laughs> but if you, and I've given uh, talks on this before, if you, they actually parallel each other almost exactly. Um, and maybe we'll touch on that a little bit today. Um, but nonetheless, in, in certainly quote-unquote modern history, the... The, uh, the golden calf certainly seems to um, be a great guidebook for, for trying to look into our own process and, and uh, making, making adjustments. Uh, I'm reminded of a, a famous Hasidic story, which is about a person who was lost in the forest. And it's just, I, I realize there are, there are a number of Hasidic stories, especially involved in getting lost in the forest <laughs> and 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 just to just to appreciate just a little bit of i don't know soci- sociology is the right word or social history or whatever it is it makes sense because there were a lot of forests around you know especially in Europe and they were large and it's easy to get lost in a forest so this was a real day-to-day reality so just to keep that in mind you know um but anyway so this story goes that this person is lost in the forest for days. So that's a really scary proposition. Can you imagine not knowing which direction to go? And that, I mean, it would give you a lot of anxiety just exploring that thought. So let's go on to the next thought. <laughs> um, so the person, the person finds another person and is so happy. And it's an old man. And, and he says to him, Oh, you know, like, thank God, you know, which way out? And the guy says, to tell you the truth, I'm also lost. But I can tell you which way is not to go. You know, so he can't tell him where to go, but he can tell him where not to go. And so when we approach a subject like the golden calf, we can try and figure out what are the directions not to go in. And then hopefully which directions to go in, but, but learning from mistakes can sometimes be as or more powerful um, than, 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 than prescriptions, you know, for, for, uh, 
for whatever, whatever the end of that thought is, you get the idea. <laughs> anyway, before we start, I want to just uh, give uh, Ira Kaplan a special thank you for uh, starting with uh, some music. And, and I've, I've been sort of kind of um, working periodically over a period of a few years trying to figure out what music is. And I, I think I've come up with, for now anyway, a, an answer. Um, and, uh, and so I just want to share with you that, that right now. Uh, the, a, a musical instrument is called a kli nagina. Like that would be the Hebrew for it. Or I've also heard it called a kli zemer. Um, so this, is, this would be translated as, as a, a vessel for song or a vessel for music. That's what a kli is. Um, and um, if you see, you see, this is actually very, very deep and, and will help us, I think, sort of like figure out what, what music is exactly. See, there's a very, very deep teaching from uh, the Tukune Zohar. And it says the following, that if you, if you take the word breishis, which is the very first word of the Torah, and really, we've given a number of talks on just the word breishis. But it's, it's really, the word breishis is like a, a microcosm um, of, of human history, of, of, of all of reality. I mean, it's amazing that the whole Torah, basically, you can see like all the headlines, right? Right in the word breishis. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing. One of, the, one of the amazing things about this word is that if you rearrange the letters, it spells out... Shiras Aleph Bez. The word Shiras and then the letters Aleph and Bez. That means the song of the Aleph Bez or the song of the of the Hebrew alphabet. Now that's particularly meaningful because our mystical tradition is that God created the world out of the letters from the Hebrew alphabet. And the way to understand that, I think, in a, in a sophisticated way, is, is not to think that God took an olive and hammered it against a gimel and made a cow, right? It's like each of these letters represent different energy wavelengths. And God combined the different energy wavelengths, the different energies, to create the world. But it's more than that. So, 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 so first things first, God created the world out of the olive base. But the, so if we look at the word for breishis, which means creation, right? It's, it, it spells out this, this phrase, the song of the olive base. Now we know from Pirkei Avos that God spoke the world into creation with ten utterances. But Reb Shlomo teaches that God sang the world into creation. And here we see a very strong support for the fact that God sang the world into creation using the energies of the olive base. So again, the word breishis, which is referring to creation, if you rearrange the letters, the word breishis is the song of the olive base. It's all contained within that first word. But, but from this, you see something, again, more primordial, which is, the existence of music as a fundamental energy of creation and reality. Now, 
we've talked about before this um, two ways of looking at something, which is, let's say I make a blessing over something. I make a blessing over a cookie before I eat it. And I'm acknowledging that it comes from God. So one approach, uh, which is maybe the more standard approach, but, I don't, but it's not the deeper approach. I don't think it's, it's, it's got a truth to it, but I don't think it's the truer approach. But nonetheless, it's a valid approach, which is that I take this cookie, and when I make the blessing over it, I sanctify the cookie, meaning to say I, I, it was sort of in this kind of, you know, whatever, this par of state of being, you know, so to speak, meaning it wasn't emitting any energy, really. It was just this inanimate object. And now through the act of acknowledging its source from the divine, I've sort of like charged it with a, with a sanctified energy. I've, I've in, injected holiness into it. That, that's, that's, that's usually how people think of it, whether they describe it in that way or not. The deeper approach is that, no, wait a second, God fills the entire universe including this cookie. This cookie already is charged with, with godliness, if you will. Everything is. And when I make a blessing, what I'm really doing is, is that I'm revealing the holiness that's there. Because the holiness is already there, but it's sort of covered over, it's concealed by, by, by nature, by our own uh, constricted consciousness. And when I make a blessing, what I do is I reveal the fact that God inhabits the entire world and he even, you know, animates this, this food that I'm eating right now. So in other words, the act of blessing reveals the oneness of God. We're not trying to make God one. We are. But in a deeper way, what we're trying to do from loving each other and doing the mitzvot and, and, and making peace and all these things is we're trying to reveal the oneness of God that's already here. Now, let's go back to music because now we can finish this thought, which is that the idea is that God who sang the world into existence, and this is seen in the very first word of the Torah, Breshis, which is the letters Shiras Alev Beis, with the song of the Alev Beis, with all these combined energies, God sang the world into existence. When one sings, what you're doing is you're revealing the energy, you're revealing the music that's already there and is animating creation. That's why a musical instrument is called a Kli Negina or a Kli Zemer, because it is the vessel through which the oneness, the music that's already there becomes revealed. That's why it's a cleat. That's why it's a vessel. Because this music exists. But unless you play it, or unless you sing, you're not revealing the energy. So the instrument becomes a cleat, a vessel, to collect and to reveal the music that's already here. With this in mind, we can understand how fundamental this Gomorrah is. It's a bit mysterious, this Gomorrah. But it says that Chazikiah HaMelech, King, the, this king, Hezekiah, that, that basically the world, after this miracle that God performed for the Jewish people where he wiped out the army of Sancherev, which was poised to, had already taken over the ten tribes of Israel and was now poised to finish us off. It was on the border of Jerusalem, what was called at that point the southern kingdom. 
It had already exiled, when we talk about the ten lost tribes, he's the one who made them lost, right? The ten tribes were now vanquished by him. He's about to come in and finish us off. God forbid. God makes this enormous miracle. They all die out. They all die out. Like God just sends a plague and wipes out the army before they can invade. And it says that that basically would have been the war of Gogu Magog. That, that was it. That was like the final war. That would have been, that would have been counted as the, 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 the final fixing, whatever it is, except King Hezekiah didn't sing a song of thanks. In other words, so that one song, say the rabbis of the Talmud, that one song or the lack of that song stopped this completion process. So now when we put that in the context of how we've been understanding it up until now, right? we can understand it, that, the, that reality has to come to this place where not just the, the oneness of God is revealed, but the music that animates this oneness. In other words, that's, that's, this, that's the, the proper level of consciousness that we have to reach, this, this music that animates the oneness of the world, this, this divine, happy happy energy that we exist amidst, whether we understand it or not, or, or feel it or not, has to be revealed. And that music will be that final kind of crossover point in terms of the revelation of what's here, of what's actually here, and what's always been here, and what's here right now. So, so you know, in terms of your own life, it's really important to have music as part of your life. You know, whether you're listening to it in the car, whether you're singing, it's important to sing. It's really important. It's um, not only is it therapeutic, but you're actually, you're activating something. You're, acti- you're activating energy that's there. You're revealing energy that's there in a very, very positive, redemptive way. So, um, so keep that in mind, you know. Um, you know, it, it's funny because if you think about just uh, comic book strips, you know, just, uh, just to, to use a very kind of primitive reference, when they want to illustrate someone happily walking down the street, they're whistling a tune. <laughs> you know, I, I know in my own life, I've been kind of singing in a room and someone's walked up to me and said, you're in a good mood. So you see this, this idea of music and singing and happiness and the revelation of this positive energy, which is here, because God created the world with it, is, is very important. So you, you can be a Kli Nagina, you know, with your body, with your mouth, with your lungs, whatever it is, to sing and everything. So, so please have this in mind. Um, okay, so now... I want to get into uh, another aspect of the golden calf. And I just want to point out one thing. I, I found this gematria. I haven't had a chance to look in the Balaturim to see if he says it. Um, so for all I know, this is a famous gematria, but um, no one told it to me. So, so I'm sharing it with you. The, the golden calf is how we sort of refer to it um, in English. But the Torah calls it um, the eagle masecha, which means the, gold, the molten calf, because they, 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 they molded it, right? So, so that's, the, that's the language that the 
Torah introduces it with. And so, so it's, it's very striking. I, I sort of like wanted to take the gematria, the, the, the numerical temperature of that, <laughs> of that phrase, you know. Uh, I wanted to see what that was, because obviously whatever that is, that's going to reveal something, uh, an insight into what it is exactly. And then for some reason, my, my, my eye went down to uh, a few lines, and there's a, a word here that says that, talks about the, how we celebrated after, after it was made. And the word that the, the Torah uses is litzachek. And so I, I guess maybe I was interested in that word because my name is Yitz, my middle name is Yitzchak. And litzachek is, is almost the same, same word, not exactly. Uh, anyway, so my eye kind of went to that word, and th- that is translated by the art scroll here as, as revel. They reveled around it, but it's actually, if you look at the, the, the Rashi, it's actually, a qu- there's quite a lot more uh, involved in that word revel. Basically, there was, um, it says, shvichas damim, which means murder. They murdered Chur, who is one of the great leaders of the Jewish people. He doesn't you don't hear much about him because he got kind of killed at the beginning of his adult career, unfortunately. But he, he went out trying to stop this rebellion that was happening, and they just knocked him off. Um, there was also Gilia Arias, which is all sorts of sexual promiscuity, so who knows what that meant, but that kind of, the golden calf kind of led to that type of celebration. And of course, idol worship, the, the golden calf itself. Um, although Rashi doesn't mention idol worship, and the, the um, commentaries seem to say that it, 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 in a lot of ways it wasn't idol worship because even though we called it a god and we said it took us out of Egypt and everything like that, people were just looking for an intermediary. They thought Moshe was dead and they felt that they needed a go-between between them and God but they, they didn't actually think it was God. But we're going to get to those points later. Anyway, here's the point. The point is that this word, letzachek, which, which is a one-word culmination of the entirety of all the, all the bad that we did with the golden calf, is the exact gematria, 228, as ego masecha. So that's just... To me, it's very fascinating that you that you have that you have the actual description of what took place with the event are identical gematrias. So, and again, when when I see things like this, um, it just makes me aware of just how much is in the Torah and how much I'm not seeing, and and just just how infinite the Torah is, and how just how precise the Torah is. It's it's. It's 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 quite it's quite amazing, you know. So so anyway, what did God have in mind? This is this is the this is the real question, and and uh, I just want to go over with you just so you have a kind of a narrative in your mind of what was taking place. I, I, I think it's important just to spell out a few points because I don't think you can begin to grasp what happened or what God had in mind with this test. Because the golden calf was not, was not something that we just sort of like did. It was something that was precipitated from God. 
God tested us with this. And I'll give you the details in a moment. But you have to understand that this was a test that came our way. We didn't just like suddenly lose it and start doing this. This was a reaction to something that God set up. So we have to get into all the mechanics of that and try and figure out all of that stuff, okay? Um, and try to figure out what God had in mind in provoking something from us. Because God actually had something very beautiful in mind. Okay, we weren't, we weren't up to it on some level, but in another way, we're still reaping the benefits. And I said that on purpose, you didn't miss here. We're still reaping the benefits of the sin of the golden calf in, in a very certain way. And I'm quoting the Talmud right now. I'm paraphrasing the Talmud, but that's what the Talmud says. So, so we'll, we'll get into all these thoughts. Um, but first, let's just try and figure out the events leading up to the golden calf just very quickly. Okay? Something amazing happened, the Gomorrah says, that when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, we reached the level of Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, before they ate from the tree of knowledge. Now this is, that is astounding. That's astounding because we've never gotten to that point before or since. So this is absolutely epic that we reach this level of Adam and Chava before we ate from the tree of knowledge. Now I want to add a thought. I haven't seen this thought before, so I'll say this over as my thought. Which is, which is that you see a hint. How do we know that we got to that level? I mean, the Gomorrah says we got to that level. Okay, I accept it. But how, how did we get to that level? So I want to suggest a, an answer. Um, maybe two answers. One, one is, what, what is that level before, before the eating from the tree of knowledge? Let's, let's understand what we were going toward first. So basically, it's, it's, a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a simplification, but, but I, I think it works for the most part, which is that what happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge is we basically concealed, concealed God's oneness. We basically introduced the idea that there might be many different powers in the world other than God, us included. Because remember, the snake says to us in trying to lure us into eating from the tree, you'll become a god too. So this whole notion of many gods, many powers, the whole idea of God becoming concealed now, and, and sort of like the introducing the opportunity for us to think that nature is one power and God is another power, and to what extent does God care or interact with us at all? All these things get triggered by eating from the tree of knowledge. If I understand the Ramban correctly, what happened was there was a severing of our minds and our hearts so that we become essentially schizophrenic beings after eating from the tree of knowledge where our mind says one thing and our heart says another thing and we don't even know what to, to think and everything is difficult for us suddenly. You know... Uh, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Beis Yaakov, that's the, the second Ishbitzer Rebbe, he said that deep down, this is to me one of the deepest thoughts I ever heard in my life, that deep down every person thinks that they created themselves. And if you think about it, that's a, that's a very alarming, very alarming thought. Because we, because 
part of what makes that so alarming is because it's completely irrational. Because we know that our parents and God, if you want to be religious about it, right, created us. So how could it be that deep down there's a place in me where I think I made myself? All right, so this is the severing of the mind and the heart. In other words, this idea of who is the final authority? Is it God? But if I made me, maybe it's me. <laughs> See, one of the deep insights into what idol worship actually is, I heard from Rabbi Moshe Shapiro, Shlita, so it written actually. You see, the, in Egypt, um, the Nile was one of their gods. And it says that Paro, Pharaoh, stood, it says, Al-Hanayal, or on the river, Al. Al means above. And so if he's, you know, we're, we're not allowed to put a book on top of a chumash. I mean, we take that really seriously. You don't, like, put your cup of coffee on top of a Bible, right? You don't do it, because what are you doing? <laughs> you know, nothing goes on top of that, right? So that's how we feel about a, that's how we, how we feel about the, the book form. Like, can you imagine, like, sitting on the head of your idol? <laughs> like, who, who would do such a thing? You know, unless, really, you think you're God. And that, and that the psychodynamics of idol worship are basically not that I'm setting up this God because that's God. I'm setting up that God which means that God's basically got a boss and it's me, which means that through idol worship, I'm making myself God. That's the idea of Paro being Al, above the Nile. Seemingly, he's worshiping it, but the language of the Torah is giving us the true power hierarchy of who's really running the Shem. So if I think deep down that I created myself, then ultimately, who am I going to take orders from? <laughs> Who's the final authority, God or me? Right? So this is, this is all implications. These are all the spiritual repercussions from eating from the tree of knowledge. All of these disconnects, all of this illusion of many powers, including myself and each one of us thinking that we're one of these powers. These are all the, these are all the um, spiritual maladies that came from eating from the tree of knowledge. I'll put it another way, much more simply. We fractured God's oneness. We fractured God's oneness. God remains one, never stops being one. But our perception, the lens through which we see the world and the universe and God himself, became this broken mirror with many different, you know, images in front of us. Okay. Now here's the thought. There's a Pusik, and Rashi explains it, that says that by Mount Sinai, before we got the Torah, and remember, the Gomorrah says when we got the Torah, we returned to the level of Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree of knowledge. Meaning to say that we got past that fractured reality, right? So what does it say? Listen to this. It says that we encamped at Mount Sinai like one person with one heart. In other words, here the Torah is giving us 
the solution to all of our problems. Unity. That when there's unity amongst us, all of a sudden we're able to raise ourselves to this extraordinary level. That all these fractured perceptions and everything like that are able to come together and be healed. You know, if you look, I saw this uh, in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, another version of this thought, which is um, in Parshas Vayechi, Yaakov Avinu is about to tell us when Mashiach is coming, when the end of days is going to be. And what he says is, if you look at the language, he says to his sons, he says, gather round, gather together. I'm going to tell you what's going to be at the end of days. Right? And then he loses his prophecy famously and isn't able to tell them. But the Ishbitzer points out something very interesting. He's telling them not just a bit of instructions for the moment, gather together, come close, you know, I haven't got a loud voice, I'm on my deathbed here, you know, come close, gather together. He's not saying that. He's saying, if you gather together, this will be in the end of days. In other words, he's connecting directly the idea of gathering together and being one, being unified, and the end of days coming. So we see this played out in reality at Mount Sinai, where it says we encamped like one person with one heart. So this is, this is, this is enormous. So this allowed us to get to the place. I would say also, if you needed to add another thing, although there's a debate whether we said this before we got the Torah or after we got the Torah, so there's a bit of an asterisk by, by number two here, which is that we said, na sevenishma. God, whatever, you, we, you know, we will, we will do and we will hear. In other words, we made, usually you hear and then you do. But we said, no, we're going to do and then we're going to hear. In other words, whatever you want, God, we're going to do. We're going to make you the final authority, not ourselves. So again, that is the complete reversal of what happened at the tree of knowledge. So with these two things combined, these two elements of consciousness combined, we reach this level before eating from the tree of knowledge. It was the ultimate fixing. Okay. Now, let's go to the next part. Something very, very interesting. Rabbi Nachman, I remember when I first started like keeping stuff and becoming more observant and everything like that, I was reading a lot of Rabbi Nachman. And I remember this sort of like making a giant impression on me. Rabbi Nachman says that if you want to come closer to God, you should know that you're going to get a test. That this, this is like normal, this is like spiritual mechanics. This is just basic spirituality 101. You want to come closer? You know, a voice goes up in heaven. Oh, look who wants to come closer. Is it true? We'll see. We'll see. You get a test. Usually, what we think from our coddled Western perspective is that if I want to come closer, all of a sudden, God should go, oh, you want to come closer, you know? Come on, you know? Well, we're throwing a party for you right now. You know, we're, we're, we're getting rid of all the tests. So this is a, a, a very big reality check for especially the, the current Western mind, you know? Um, so so you, you, you get a test. Now, now uh, so people shouldn't be surprised by that in their own lives. Now, let me ask you this. Let's just apply that to the next step. If we're about to 
bring Mashiach at that moment, which is basically where everything is heading at that moment. We've now rectified the sin of Adam and Eve, seemingly, right? If we're still, if we're about to get to that place, what are we going to get? A test. And how large a test? A pretty giant test. A pretty giant test, because it's going to be commensurate, seemingly, with, with the enormity of the good that's about to come, that's on the line there. Now, I want to digress for a moment, and I want to tell you an explanation of something that's a very perplexing Gomorrah for many people. And the Gomorrah goes like this. I didn't have a chance to look it up, so I can't tell you the page exactly, but if you put in some keywords based on what I'm saying, you'll be able to find it quickly. One of the greatest sages of the Gomorrah, it's a, a name you'd recognize for sure, said that as a person's Yetzer Tov increases, meaning to say, as a person rises in spirituality and spiritual accomplishment and observance, however you want to call it, his Yetzahara his negative inclination gets stronger. <laughs> now, this is something that just like short circuits people's brains because they're like, wait a second, no, 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 I don't get it. If I'm doing more, I wasn't keeping Shabbos before, now I'm keeping Shabbos more. I wasn't even keeping kosher, now I'm keeping kosher. You're telling me that my desire to do uh, wrongdoing, however you define that, is actually getting stronger? How does that work? Okay, so let me try to explain it to you. Because again, this is all, just, just so you know, we haven't changed the subject. We're still talking about where we were at this amazing level of spirituality. After we've gotten the Torah, we've come together as one. Unity, oneness. God, you come first, you're the final authority. And now, God's about to send a giant test commensurate with our with our, with our level, okay? So why is it that as one rises in spirituality, that the Yetzirah, the negative inclination, also gets stronger? Why would that be? Okay? So I, I was trying to um, explain this to someone the other day. And I said to them, if I gave you $10, would you go over there and kick that homeless person in the face? You should have seen the expression on her face and the people who were there. They were like, what are you, a monster? Like, are you out of your mind? I mean, they were literally horrified by hearing that. And, and of course, I mean, I obviously didn't want her to do it. But what I wanted to illustrate with that, with that offer was that in a million years, they wouldn't do it. And, 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 and of course, they wouldn't do it. Now, why wouldn't they do it? Why, why wouldn't they do it? Besides the fact that it's wrong and terrible and everything like that. Let's just approach it from a more spiritual, kind of clinical perspective. Because they have evolved way past that point. Right? Most people have evolved, spiritually speaking, in terms of their ethics and morality, way past that point. Where $10 to horribly hurt this, you know, person for no reason? Why? Um, the point being this. It's no longer within the realm of their free choice, really. 
You see, they've risen up, and this point of action is so beneath them that it's not really within their free choice to do that anymore. You see? I mean, could they do it technically? Yes, but we're not talking about that. Could I technically learn 24 hours a day or 23 hours a day? I guess. But Rabbi Dessler makes the point, he, he, he talks about this, he calls it the point of Bechira. Bechira means free choice. That every single person in their life is like a, a spiritual spectrum. And there's a point where something you can actually do something. If I say to you, can you write a book by the end of the week? No, but you're a professional writer. I, I can't do it. Could you do it in six months? That I could do it. That I could do. In other words, there are things that, that physically speaking, maybe you could do theoretically, but, but that's not the proper way to gauge reality. You have to gauge whether the person actually is in a place in their life where they're actually eligible to do that level of action. Only then are we talking about their point of Bechira, their actual point and level of free choice. Is that clear? Is that clear? You could say to someone who has no experience with Shabbos, can you start keeping a 25-hour Shabbos tomorrow? Very hard. Extremely hard. Could you show up at my house Friday night for dinner? I, probably, yeah, I could do that. So then that's their point of Bechira. That's their point of free choice. Not keeping a 25-hour Shabbos at that point in their life. So in other words... What's, what's instructive about this, spiritually speaking, is that, is that we have to have the proper ways to evaluate what, where a person really is holding and what a person can actually do. Because sometimes we've got a skewed perspective of what a person can do. Or a person has a skewed perspective of what they can do. And they ask too much of themselves at a certain moment. And they're not addressing their actual point of free choice. Their actual point of Bechira. Do you understand? So you have to be very realistic with what you can accomplish at that moment and cater to your strength, not create impossible expectations because you say, theoretically, I could do it. Theoretically, I should do it. I'm supposed to do it, everything like that. None of that really matters. It's what can you actually do in this moment? That's the only thing that matters. And then do you do that or do you not do that? So now, let's get back to this idea that as a person's free choice, right? As, or rather, as a person's spiritual level goes up, their Yetzirah, their ne negative inclination also goes up. Because God has to give you the ability to have free choice at every single level of your spiritual development. And something that is wrong or bad, you may have grown out of that so that it's not really within your realm of free choice to do that wrong thing. There have to be new and exciting bad things to do. <laughs> right? It's like, wow, I never even considered that, you know, as I finished Shas. You know, it's like, that's really kind of intriguing, isn't it? You know? Who would know? So you have to, that's, that is the idea. That's the idea. That as you grow, you must always have to have that counterbalance of free choice, that friction, that bouncing off point 
of, of what you're doing now and what you're not doing. See, that's the full description of your level. It's not just what you're doing. It's what you're doing and what you're not doing. Because remember, the Pasuk in Tehillim says, Sur me Do good and flee from bad. Okay? Or actually, it's the opposite. Sur me Go away from bad. And do good. In other words, the fullness of the description of your level isn't just what you're doing. It's what you're doing and it's what you're not doing. And so, as you increase in positive action, there always has to be that, that new point at your new level of something new that's tempting that you aren't doing. Because that's the fullness of your, that's the fullness of your spirituality. Remember, if you want to boil down the core elements of your humanity. First of all, it's free choice, but it's what I do and what I don't do. Right? That, that is, you can't boil it down much further than that in terms of a description of you as an active being. It's what you do and what you refrain from doing. That's basically it. And by the way, I heard in the name of the Ari, that's what got damaged in the Garden of Eden. We're not sure what we should do, and we're not sure what we shouldn't do. Well, that's a pretty fundamental messing up, isn't it? That's about as deep as it gets in terms of short-circuiting the system. So that's, again, how we're trying to get back to that place of oneness. Because we, all of us are broken. We're all broken, you know, if you look at it from that perspective. Okay, good. So now, now that we have an understanding of how free choice works, I hope, or a better understanding of how free choice works, let's return back to, the, to Mount Sinai. So now, again, we've all come together as one people, one person with one heart. Tremendous unity, counteracting the, fracture, the, the, the fractionalizing, the broken mirror prism that we're seeing God in the world through for, as a result from eating from the tree of knowledge. We've said, Nasev Nishma. Right? We've made God the final authority, not us. All right? So we've reached this enormous high level. Now God says, okay, let's, let's get down to business. All right? Here's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Children of Israel, I'm going to send you a big test because right now you're about to go to the next level. And I just want to point out where you see this next level in the, in the Torah because it's really cool and not nearly well enough uh, known. And I saw this from Rabbi Wolfson. And um, when, 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 uh, when the people come up to Aaron and they say to Aaron, make us a, uh, a golden calf, basically. And Aaron says, you know what? Uh, tomorrow. We'll make, we're going to have a big festival tomorrow. So the, the standard way of understanding that, and I'm, I'm sure it's true, by the way, also, is Aaron was trying to do this delay, ta- delay tactic so that people would kind of stop their panic over the fact that Mo- they, they thought was, that Moshe was dead. We'll get to that in a moment. But that's what triggered this whole thing. So, so but the... The deeper understanding is the following. That the next day really was going to be a holiday. That was going to be the 17th of Tammuz, that's, that, which is now a fast day, 
But amazingly, amazingly, the prophet Zacharias says it's going to be a holiday. So we know that in its essence it is a holiday, and it was always meant to be a holiday. Unfortunately, we turned it into a fast day. But so when Aaron says the next day, tomorrow is going to be a holiday, he was absolutely telling the truth. So what was the holiday? What's the lost holiday for now? What was the holiday, the great Jewish holiday that was supposed to take place that day? It was going to be the holiday of Moshe coming down from the mountain with the tablets. Intact. Intact. And that was going to be the finishing of this process of receiving the Torah. Moshe coming down with the tablets. That was gonna, that's the 17th of Tammuz. And if you look in the prayer books, and it lists why we fast on the 17th of Tammuz, one of the reasons that's given is because Moshe came down and smashed the, smashed the tablets on the 17th of Tammuz. So that day was supposed to be, no, the opposite, the holiday, we got the tablets, here they are, let's go, let's go to Israel, let's charge right now. Okay. So now, now what did, so what did God test us with? So it says in the Gomorrah that Hashem showed us the Satan, but, you know, we only have one power, it's only God, but he tests us, and when he tests us, this energy is referred to as the Satan, or the Yetzahara, or the Malach Mavis, or the Sitra Achra, the Samach Mem, it's a whole litany of terms, but it's one, one energy. It's one energy, and God controls it. It's just, it's, just when, it's just a description of when God is testing us, that's all. There's only God. There's not two powers wrestling against each other. So, so, so the Sutton, it says, showed us a coffin, Moshe's coffin. And we thought Moshe's dead. And that's what we were supposed to think. God showed it to us so that we would think Moshe's dead. And, and, and we make the golden calf. Now, let me just add this quickly, but I want to get to the more positive point. I think we know what we did. We made a golden calf and, 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 and we panicked. So we know what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't panic and we shouldn't make a golden calf in our lives when we think all is lost or I'm on my own or I'm alone. Don't panic. That's the mistake we made back then. Don't panic. Okay? God wanted us to say, I think, the following. This is my understanding, but... Again, the question is, what did God want us to do? We know what we did and what we shouldn't have done. But what did God want us to do? And I think the answer is, God wanted us to say, okay, God, you're still here. I'm still here. We've got the Torah. We know what to do. Let's keep moving forward. I have a direct connection with you. What else, needs to, what else do I need to know? What else needs to be said? We have to know that in our lives. Just to tell you this story, just because it's just so good. And then I'm going to get it to the, 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 the positive thing that God had in mind with this test in a moment. So, Rebbe Nachman's Torahs were all written down by Reb Nosen. And the story is of how Reb Nosen became the chassid, the follower of Rebbe Nachman is the following. Reb Nosen came to Rebbe Nachman and they walked they took a long, long walk together, an hour, two hours. And Reb Nosen was just telling 
Rabbi Nachman, all of his problems. And Rabbi Nachman didn't say anything, he just listened. And at the end of everything that Rabbi Nosson said, Rabbi Nachman turned to him and he said to him, all these things that you just told me, have you told God? And at that moment, Reb Nussin said, this is my Rebbe. This is, this is the one who can teach me how to connect with God. So, so we have to know, no matter what, no matter what our life circumstances are, we have that direct connection always, even when it seems like everything is falling apart, like it seemed at that moment. And you know, there's a, sometimes the higher a person is, the, the bigger the fall. And we had reached that, the highest level at that moment. So there was an experience of a giant free fall that we were experiencing at that moment. So this is a very important thing to keep in mind in our own lives. Now I want to say one other thing. Something that I, I, uh, I discovered yesterday during the davening um, which again illustrates God's utter closeness and this direct connection. There's, um, there's a, a pasuk, a verse in the Psalms, uh, which, is, which we reference all the time. We say it all the time. We say it three times a day, actually probably more than three times a day. Men say it when they put on their tefillin, so that's already four times. People say it during the benching, so you can say it five or six times a day. Say it a lot of times a day, but... The, the phrase is, Poseach et yadecha God, you open your hand and fulfill the desire of every living thing. Right? And this is the, this is the hallmark, landmark verse of livelihood, of receiving parnasa, of receiving money, you know, from, from God, basically. That God sustains us. That's the... And it says, if you look in the sitter, it says that one should really concentrate when they say this and everything like that. Some people have the custom to put out their hands, their palms facing upward when they say it. So they should be a vessel to receive at that moment, to really understand that God is feeding us always. Right? So I was thinking, you know, I've never really looked at that phrase carefully. Let me just try to look at it and see if I, I can see something in it, you know? And, uh, you know, because times are tough, and I know for myself, if I get a check a week, I'm doing good, you know? So what is this idea that God is sustaining us constantly? Like, where do you see it exactly? And so I started counting the letters, and I saw there's 24 letters, and then I counted the words, and I saw there's seven words. And I thought, wow, 24-7. 24-7, God is sustaining us. And then I thought, well, where do you, how is that? And then I realized, you know something? Right now I'm not eating. But the nutrients in my body are releasing nourishment that's keeping me alive right now, even though I'm not eating. And when I'm sleeping in bed, I'm not even conscious. But my metabolism is functioning and it's, you know, converting all these calories and vitamins and nutrients, whatever the exact scientific vocabulary is. But I'm actually being nourished and fed 
24-7. And it's not just me. It's every single animal and every single creature. Whether it's eating at that moment or whether it's not eating at that moment, every single living thing is being nourished 24-7. You know, they're discovering creatures toward the bottom of the ocean, new species all of the time. There are, there's like a, there's a squirrel running up a tree in a remote area that you will, no human's going to step on. That squirrel right now is being nourished by God. There are ants and little things and everything. 24-7. 24-7. That's God keeping you alive, working on you, through you. Constantly. I heard in the name of Rabbi Lazar Brody that by the time you, he, he was sharing with, with an audience that, that he, you know, he had a, a rough moment, I guess, during his, his military service, or many rough moments. And at a one point he said he realized that he had gotten about 30,000 meals in his life, right? He thought, I've gotten 30,000 meals in my life. Is God really going to abandon me at this moment? I mean, there's... And can I tell you something, by the way? One only gets to this level where, where this information that I'm telling you is meaningful, meaningful in a real way, if one begins to look at the world through the perspective of gratitude. When you look at the world through the perspective of gratitude and giving thanks and what you have as opposed to what you don't have, then you can begin these confidence-building measures with God. Because, believe me, belief is a very kind of shadowy kind of entity. It really is. And it's got to be nurtured. It's got to be nurtured, and it's not just like an on switch. Today I believe, today I don't believe. Today I believe, today I don't believe. It's not like that. It's got to be nurtured. And with any relationship, with any person, there have to be these confidence-building measures. You know, you, you met him for lunch, right? And he showed up, and he was on time, and you were on time, right? And he said he was going to email you that thing, and he emailed you that thing. You know, and then you made another appointment, and they were also there. And he said he was going to get you that thing and make that call for you, and he made that call for you. And over a period of time, you go, oh, I can rely. I can rely on this person, right? So when you look at all that you have, and you appreciate all that you have, not only are you putting yourself in a more positive frame of mind, but you're activating it by giving thanks, Wow, I have this, thank you. Wow, I have this, thank you. Wow, I have this, thank you. And you realize, wow, that thing didn't go away. You know, I'm under a lot of pressure. I don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. But you know what? I had lunch today and I had dinner today. And you know what? I'm scared out of my wits. But you know what? There's something in the refrigerator. And after a certain period of time, you go, you know what? God has never stopped taking care of me. So... So I can rely on him. Even though I don't know what's going to be for tomorrow, I can rely. Of course, we have to do our job too. We, God very much wants us to do our job too. We have to do our job too. That's part of this. 
So now let's get back to let's get back to the golden calf. On some level, what were we supposed to do? Say, God, you're always here. It's always you. I, it's it's only you. It's only you. I don't need an in between. I don't need an in between. You're always here. You're always here, and it's always you. That would have been a very high level. Now, there's a very deep question which is one of the fundamental paradoxes of existence. The Torah is very strong on this. We 100% have free choice, but at the same time, God knows what we're going to do. And I'm not going to try to explain how this can happen, except to say that this is how I resolve it. In this dimension that we live in right now, it is a paradox and it can't be reconciled, both of those things. However, in higher dimensions, because this is just one dimension and there's dimensions upon dimensions upon dimensions within, within God, in higher dimensions it's not a contradiction and there's no problem whatsoever. That's, that's how I resolve this, this paradox. It's only a paradox from our perspective. From God's perspective, it's not a paradox at all. Okay? So, on the one hand, we made the golden calf and we did wrong and we messed up. On the other hand, God knew we were going to mess up. So if that's the case, that God knew that we were going to mess up, what did God have in mind in sending it our way? And now with that context, I think that we can more fully understand the beauty of this Gomorrah. And this is what I referenced earlier, the benefit of having failed with the golden calf. The benefit. You ready? It says that God set us up. That basically, you know what? God knew we were going to fail with this. Okay. But why? Because he's mean? Because he's a punishing God? Because he wants to undermine us whenever he gets a chance? No. For the following reason. So that... Throughout Jewish history, if there's a community that basically messes up, that that community can say the following. You know something? The generation who received the Torah at Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, heard God speak at Mount Sinai, they messed up with the sin of the golden calf, and God forgave them. And if God forgave them, surely God can forgive us. And then it says in the Gomorrah, maybe you'll think that that's just the schus, the merit of the community, because we know that when a community comes together, our prayers become more powerful. Maybe that's just on the communal level. What about on the individual level? God will forgive a community, but he's not going to forgive me personally. And so the Gomorrah goes on to say that this is why Hashem gave this test to King David with Bathsheba, that he knew King David wasn't going to pass. So that every individual would be able to say that if King David, who's the soul of the Messiah, if he could mess up and if God could forgive him, surely God can forgive me. So in other words, now seen from this perspective, we have an entirely different view of the whole event of the golden calf, which is that God gave us the Torah and then he equipped us with the consciousness that we would make mistakes and that we would be forgiven for all time. That the forgiveness would never stop. 
And this now becomes transformed into an awesome gift that God gave us. So again, we have to take personal responsibility and we have to always strive to do the right thing. But we also have to understand the goodness of God. And that behind every challenge and behind every obstacle and behind every hard time is God reaching out to us and that God has something very high and very beautiful in mind for us. And that if we experience a test, whatever it is, you know, interestingly, Rabbi Nachman brings down that if a person, when, at the time a person gets angry, money is coming down. <laughs> and not to blow it by getting angry. <laughs> it's a good thing to, you know, because there's no greater incentive than money usually. So, you know, if you think at that moment, I can either get angry or get some cash, <laughs> I'll choose the cash. You know, it's a very good way to bribe yourself into not indulging in your own anger. You know, but, but, but again, again, to just understand that, that when seen from this perspective, the most calamitous, <laughs> the most calamitous event, basically, in our, in, our, in our history as a people, spiritually speaking, that God had something intensely beautiful in mind. That we're still the beneficiaries, beneficiaries of God's ongoing forgiveness. Then surely we can apply that lesson to our own life. And to know wherever we turn, no matter what is going on, that God is good. <laughs>